This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And when Jesse plays music like that, I know what's coming up. He loves great practical jokes, and so do we here on the show. And he's been giving us any number of stories about great practical jokesters of the 20th century in this country. And boy, have we had some doozies in the past. We had daredevils like Lawn Chair Larry, who violated L.A.'s airspace laws while floating on a lawn chair attached to weather balloons. We had a hacker like Captain Crunch who broke into the national phone system using a whistle found in a cereal box so he and his buddies could make free phone calls long distance. And of course, Alan Abel, who convinced the world that we should put pants on barnyard pets. (laughs) That was my favorite. And by the way, this show loves the show Impractical Jokers. My little girl and I can sit down for hours on end and watch those guys on True TV just, well, crack each other up. And Americans are a fun-loving group of people. And that brings us to today's story about hackers and jokesters and hoaxers. And today we bring you the tale of an old-school media hacker named Jim Moran, whose personal brand of trickery is sure to entertain. Here's Jesse. You can't buy publicity like this. Jim Moran was called, at various times, super salesman number one, America's number one prankster, and the last great bunko artist in the profession of publicity. He became famous during the 30s and 40s for devising outrageous stunts on behalf of his clients. He was a publicist and press agent for film studios, manufacturers, retailers, and Washington politicians from the 30s to the 80s. In 1989, Time Magazine ranked him as the supreme master of that most singular marketing device, the publicity stunt. There is no such thing as bad publicity. Born in 1907, Moran was the son of a chimney maker. When he was 12 years old, he was riding a bicycle and was hit by a car. The driver was so relieved to see that Moran was unharmed that he gave him $100, which Moran immediately used to take a train to New Orleans. Instead of going to college, Moran took a variety of jobs, including a tour guide in Washington, an airline executive, and a manager of a studio where congressmen recorded speeches for local radio. His favorite technique was to test the validity of popular sayings. In August of 1938, he traveled to Juneau, Alaska on behalf of General Electric, where he sold ice to an Eskimo. He then returned to Hollywood with 200 pounds of Arctic ice, claiming that it was the purest ice in the world. He sold 10 pounds of it to an actress who used it for facial treatments. In 1939, to promote a real estate development, he literally searched for a needle in a haystack. The search took him 82 and a half hours before he finally found it near the bottom and slightly to the left of center. In 1940, he led a live bull through a New York City china shop. The bull didn't damage anything, however, some of the china was broken when Moran's client nervously backed into a table. And that's just the first three publicity stunts that Jim Moran pulled off in his lifetime career of getting people's attention for a living. That advertisement had no effect on me whatsoever. In June of 1946, he sat on an ostrich egg for 19 days, 4 hours and 32 minutes in order to hatch it. He did all of this while wearing a feather headpiece with a foot-high ostrich plume. Do they bite? No, they kick, but they aren't very bright. You lie down flat, he can't see you. That's the male. He has to guard the eggs. But if you can distract him... How do I distract a male ostrich? The stunt was designed to promote a movie called The Egg and I. The baby ostrich, when hatched, was named Ossip Moran. He donated it to a zoo. 
In November of 1946, Jim Moran tricked the Los Angeles Art Association into displaying an abstract painting of his own creation, described by him as, quote, the worst thing I could think of. Okay, let's just put a happy little mountain, something about like that. And let's paint several little happy trees. He disguised the fake art as work of a previously unknown artist known as Naromji, which is his own name spelled backwards with a J-I added for confusion. The work hung beside paintings by well-known modern artists at the time and was given a price tag of $1,000. $1,000,000. It was a ton of money in 1946. The painting was even described by the Los Angeles Times as, quote, an astonishing conglomeration of paint, chalk, magazine cutouts, and fingernail polish. It consisted of a series of swirls and triangles, and in the spaces in between the lines, the artist had placed small pictures that included a fish, a head, an arm, eyes, and a leg cut out from a lingerie advertisement. But the art association was just a tad embarrassed when, at the end of the month, the publicist-slash-prankster Jim Moran revealed that he was the true author of the painting. The Art Association eventually criticized the hoax, arguing that it could make it harder for young unknown artists to get their work displayed. (laughs) One more of the dozens of pranks that Jim Moran here pulled off over the years was in 1947. During the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia's trip to the United States, Moran showed up at Ciro's restaurant in Hollywood disguised as the prince. He was accompanied by fake guards and servants. During his meal, he tipped the waiters and band members with large gems. On his way out of the restaurant, the goatskin bag holding the gems accidentally broke, scattering the jewels all over the floor. One of his fake servants started to pick them up, but Moran imperiously waved his hand to signal him to stop, because picking up the jewels was beneath the dignity of a prince. He then left the restaurant, and upon his departure, the Hollywood elite dining at the restaurant immediately scrambled to snatch up the jewels, all of which were actually just dime store trinkets of no value. And those are just a few of the many publicity stunts and flat-out hoaxes that Jim Moran pulled off during his long career. Jim Moran died in Inglewood, New Jersey in October of 1999. His obituary, written in the New York Times, read... His life might be described by two symbols, the exclamation point and the dollar sign. He pushed outrageousness to the outer limits to seize the attention of the buying public. He got the attention he desired. Even his colleagues in the publicity business, a species not given to promoting much of anything without being paid, gave him respect. And that is the story of publicist, hoaxer, and prankster, Jim Moran. This is Our American Stories. And great job as always, Jesse, and we want more. That's all I can say. We want more of these. And just as my little girl and I can't get enough of impractical jokers, I don't think Americans can ever get sick of good and decent and sometimes even on the edge practical jokes. By the way, don't try practical jokes on people who can't take it. That's cruel. But for people who can, bring it on, baby. That's what we say. This is Lee Habib. This is our American stories. Impractical jokester, hoaxer, Jim Moran story here on Our American Stories.
this is Our American Stories. And this next story comes from, well, Jesse's mind. He pulled this out. And it's an American dreamer's story, folks. We love telling the stories of folks who start businesses. Hey, musicians are an American dream story. We've done Mario Andretti's, a race car driver and his dream and how he made it happen. His family displaced in Italy after World War II, comes here with nothing and creates Andretti Racing. And you can hear all of our material on ouramericannetwork.org. Go there, sign up for our newsletter. You'll get the five best stories of ours each week. We'll send them right into your box. You can read them or you can listen to them. We transcribe all of these stories for your pleasure as well. Some people just like to read it. Others like to listen. And this story again is Jesse's, and it's about Brian Scudamore, an American-born entrepreneur and the CEO of Got Junk, a company with $200 million in yearly revenue that repurposes and recycles what many of us throw away in the trash. He gave a speech recently where he talked about the things he learned while building what has become the world's largest junk removal service. Brian's story starts off like a lot of entrepreneurial stories in that he was more interested in starting a business than going to school. 1989, right out of high school, one course short of graduation, I went and started the Rubbish Boys, saw a beat up old pickup truck and a McDonald's drive-through and I went, hey, there's a great idea. My inspiration for starting that business was it was simple, I didn't finish high school, I wasn't that smart, I could load junk into a truck, I had $1,000 in the bank, I could go buy a truck. I spray-painted the phone number 738-junk on the side, knocked on doors, alleys, laneways. Someone had a pile of junk, I'd introduce myself and offer to cart it away for a fee. That basic business model was to help pay my way through college. Because I didn't finish high school, I remember my father said, I'm not going to help you with your college education. I don't think it would be a good return on investment. You know, you can't finish grade 12, why should we give you some money? And I thought, you know, that's fair, and that taught me something. I had to do it on my own. So by starting the Rubbish Boys, started making money, started to fund my way through college, felt I was learning an awful lot about business, running a business, and it was just that on the streets learning, and I made the bold decision to drop out. We learned that Brian's business began to grow, but it wasn't enough to keep Brian interested in what he was doing. So 1991, I had a couple of years under my belt. The business was working. I was making money. Um, and I decided that I felt bored. I felt like, you know, this is a junk business, nothing glamorous about it. And I tried to sell my business. Had a deal in writing with someone for five grand. Um, not a lot of money, but it felt like a, enough at the time. And the deal fell through at the 11th hour. And I just felt crushed. But the lesson I learned slightly after that was that the lows precede the highs. The tide goes in, the tide comes out. The sun rises, the sun sets. There's going to be bad times, there's going to be tough times, but it's what you learn from those to help turn them into the good times. The following year, when I stuck with my business because I couldn't sell it, felt like I was sort of forced to stick with it, there was still good money, uh, my girlfriend at the time said, why don't you go to the press and tell them your story? And I said, what story? And she said, well, you created your own job, it's kind of cool, people like entrepreneurs. So I went out and told my story to the press and we got on the front page of the province newspaper, our, our head newspaper in the city on the next day with our big truck, our phone number, 100 calls within, a, within 24 hours and that was a bit of a high. I was like, okay, free press, didn't cost a thing. Uh, let's do more of this. But with the highs came the lows and Brian's next difficult step, he'd have to fire everyone at the company. 
1994, I think that was the first real lesson that I experienced as a manager or as a leader. And I think leadership is a, a real important word. It's everything in a business. I had the wrong people. I was leading the wrong people in my business. I had a half a million dollars in revenue, which was exciting and I felt good about it, but I stopped having fun. I wasn't working with people that I enjoyed working with any longer. I don't think they respected me. I didn't really respect them. Brought them all in, a, in an office one day and sat all 11 down because I wanted just to get it over with and rip off the Band-Aid and I fired everybody at once. But I took full, <laughs> it wasn't funny, you laugh, it, it was awful. Most of them were bigger than me. And I said, listen, you know, you're a linebacker, you're big, but I'm still firing you. And you know what the deal is here is I, as your leader, have let you down. I either didn't hire the right people or I didn't train you, didn't spend enough time with you. I didn't give you the support and direction you need to be successful. So let me be clear, this is my fault. And I believed it. And that day I came up with a mantra that it's all about people, finding the right people and treating them right. In fact, at our head office, the junction in Vancouver, it says it's all about people with my name below it as our commitment to always find the right people and always treat them right. So one piece of uh, wisdom, I guess, from my own learnings was never, ever, ever compromise on the people you bring into your organization. I've made mistakes. I said it was okay, and I said don't repeat them. I've certainly repeated them, and every time I do, it's the worst mistake to make because it ends up costing you time and money. And by the way, we hear this mantra over and over again from Bernie Marcus, who is the co-founder of Home Depot, straight to Mario Andretti and his racing crew, and he had the best. Because my goodness, a racer without a great car and without a great pit crew is nothing. While his company was experiencing initial success, and after realizing that he'd hired the wrong people, Brian created a vision for his company that would have more impact than he could have ever imagined. Now, 1998, I came up with a concept that I didn't realize at the time. I was on, on another low. I went to my parents' uh, summer cottage, sat out on the dock, September 17, 1998. Sunny day, but it wasn't sunny in my brain. I felt depressed, I felt down. All my other entrepreneur buddies were building bigger businesses. And I just said, you know, junk removal again. I don't have the brains, I don't have the money. I don't know if this is what I want to build. And then I said, hold on here a second. I pulled out a piece of paper and I sat out on that dock and I wrote on both sides, what could the future of 1-800-GOT-JUNK look like if only I believed in possibility? Not all the things that were in the way, mostly me, but what was the possibility? And I wrote, we will be in the top 30 metros in North America by the end of 2003. We'll be on the Oprah Winfrey show. This is what our people will look like, feel like, and act like. This is the culture. And I listed it all out. And it really was sort of a Jerry Maguire moment. And I wrote almost my manifesto. And I started sharing it with people. And I started buying into my own uh, vision or painted picture. And I went, wow. I was ready to give up on my business, maybe sell again or quit but I chose to believe in my vision and rally others around me. People that believed stayed on board and became a part of it. People that didn't believe left and said, this isn't for me. It was the ultimate leadership tool. I had a clear vision, a clear painted picture, knew where I was going. I guess my lessons learned, my own experience, if you have a clear vision and know where you're going, if you believe in it and never question that vision so that others that come into your business it uh, doesn't matter how small or large your business is. If you don't have a clear vision, I don't think you'll get to where you want to go. You don't have a clear picture. So you need people to follow. And then finding the right people. 
People have often said to me, well, how do you find the right people? And there's books on it, and you can get checklists and all this sort of stuff. I keep it relatively simple. And I sit there and I go, okay, first and foremost, I'm hiring for culture. Is this someone I'd want to have over to my house for a barbecue? Is this someone that I'd want to go have a pint with after a, a busy, crazy day or some cool celebration? Let's start there, because you spend an awful lot of time at work. I want to enjoy my time with that person and know that they're a cultural fit. If they're a cultural fit, then you dive into the next level and look at their skills. But I think if someone believes in your vision and they've got cultural alignment, they'll figure everything else out. It's not that hard. In closing, Brian shares a quote that was used in an advertising campaign by Apple. So the quote goes something like this. Here's to the crazy ones. The misfits, the rebels, the troublemakers, the round pegs in the square holes, the ones who see things differently. They're not fond of rules, and they have no respect for the status quo. You can quote them, disagree with them, glorify or vilify them. About the only thing you can't do is ignore them, because they change things. They move, they push the human race forward. And while some may see them as the crazy ones, we see them as genius. Because the people who are crazy enough to think they can actually change the world are the ones who do. And that was a great find, Jesse. Brian Scudamore's story got junk. We've done so many of these American Dreamer stories, some of our recent favorites. Jake Burton and what he did to revolutionize a sport called snowboarding. And... The Cedars brothers, Brian and Roy, and they gave us Yeti, the Yeti Coolers. Our American Dreamers series, here on Our American Stories. stories and we love going on road trips because Americans love road trips and when we're on those trips we talk to people across this great beautiful country and we sent some of our team on a tour of the south not long ago and on that trip they found themselves at the Coca-Cola Museum in Vicksburg Mississippi take it away Faith I'd like to buy the world a home and furnish it with love. Grow apple trees and honeybees and snow white turtle doves. I'd like to teach the world to sing, sing with me. Coca-Cola. As American as apple pie. 
It began with a flavored syrup combined with carbonated water that was invented by Atlanta druggist John S. Pemberton in 1886. It has gone on to become one of the most beloved refreshments of the modern world. Coca-Cola's popularity declined for years until a businessman named Asa Griggs Candler took over the business following Pemmerman's death in 1888. But it wasn't the soda fountain drink that really got it going. It was the ability to get it anywhere, anytime, any place. And the first bottling of Coca-Cola didn't happen until eight years later with a German immigrant family. My name is Nancy Bell, and I am the executive director of the Vicksburg Foundation for Historic Preservation. And this is the Beanhorn Coca-Cola Museum in Vicksburg, Mississippi. This is where Coca-Cola was first bottled anywhere in the world in 1894. This building was built in 1890. And this is where the Beanhorns had a candy store. They also made cakes. They did all kinds of things. They bottled their own soda water. It was a strawberry flavor. And so, of course, they had their own bottles with Beanhorn Candy Company on them, in which they bottled that. Um, they operated a soda fountain. And in the soda fountain, of course, there were a variety of flavors. Um, there were literally hundreds of flavors of drinks in those days. And so, you know, Mr. Beanhorn had, had a selection of drinks other than his own. If you wanted his, he, as I said, had his own bottles. And so he would put his, his drink in, the, in a bottle and then um, bottle up a case of it. He'd send it uh, out to your location if you wanted to. They bottled for half a day and then they would deliver for the other half of the day. They came from Germany um, to, to Vicksburg uh, by way of New Orleans, I believe, and um, they were candy makers. And so they had their, they made candy in their little, little shop. And then, you know, eventually they added, just like, most entrepreneurs, you know, they added more things to it. And they looked, um, I think they, they looked to the future and they saw, okay, people are doing um, soda fountains. You know, soda fountains became more and more, and so they, they included that into their, they were baking cakes, they were doing, and then, oh, wow, yeah, we can bottle our own now, you know. I, I think they were just good entrepreneurs. I think they were just um, um, smart and not, um, thinking about the present, they were looking to the future. And I'm not sure the Coca-Cola company was doing that at that time. They were saying that, yeah, we're, we're distributing in the Southeast, and yes, we're, we're getting others to do it for us too, and um, our money, though, is, is in soda fountains. That's where it is. I don't think they thought really ahead of that because they were in Atlanta and because they were in an urban area, and they, you know, I think that made a difference too as opposed to Ms. Breedenhorn, and while I said Vicksburg was the biggest city in the state at that time, we still were, were, were very rural as well. I mean, he would deliver to picnics, you know. I mean, you know, we're, ha we're having a picnic out here with, you know, 50 people. Can you deliver? Yeah, heck yeah. So as time went on, um, people became really uh, more a fan of Coca-Cola than of Mr. Breedenhorn's flavor and they wanted to know why they couldn't get Coca-Cola also. Why, why could they only get his flavor in a bottle and not Coca-Cola in a bottle? Because you know, when you came in, you came to a soda fountain, big beautiful soda fountain, and you got it in a really pretty little glass, but at the end, you left the, the glass, you couldn't take the Coca-Cola with you. So, so many people asked that he um, decided that he would bottle some Coca-Cola. He bottled it in his own bottles. He bottled up a case, he sent it to Atlanta to ask for permission. 
And they said, yeah, you can bottle if you want to. Won't amount to anything, but if you want to do it, go ahead. And of course, that's really what launched Coca-Cola was that ability to get it anywhere, anytime, anyplace. Soda fountains were the thing of the day. Um, they were, you know, the places you went, they competed with each other to make bigger, more elaborate, all of that. So I think the Coca-Cola company didn't see past that. The Beanhorns, um, you know, continued to make candy. They continued to um, operate their soda fountains. And then when they found that Coca-Cola was really where they could make more money, um, then they built other buildings and started, of course, wholesale distributing of, of Coca-Cola in this area. Um, they did not have a contract at that time with Coca-Cola, but Coca-Cola, of course, knew that they were doing this. In 1902, Coca-Cola signed with Chattanooga as the very first actual contract, you know, um, and at that time they said, now you can have these areas, but you can't have any areas that Mr. Beadhorn is already bottling in. So of course they recognized what he was doing, and then they ended up with the contract with him um, for different areas. Nowadays, we can get soda anytime we want. We simply go to the store and pick up some bottles or cans of Coke. But this process of bottling was no easy task when it first began. We have a reproduction of the bottling works that was first used to bottle Coca-Cola. So what we forget is, while yes, you could go down to the store and buy um, carbonated water, it, you didn't buy it in tremendous amounts. So it really made a lot more sense to make your own carbonated water. So you had to use marble chips, you had to use acid, you had to you know, you had to, to drop the marble chips into the acid and then rotate it carefully. And then that would roll into another container where there was water and then you slowly rocked that until it was incorporated into the, the water and, and all of that. So first you had to do that. And then you had to um, take the syrup was in a large container up high and that would flow into your bottle X amount and then that you then you filled it with the carbonated water and then of course you still had to put early on you had to do the rubber stopper with the wire um, these people would wear um, big heavy leather jackets wooden shoes big um, leather gloves and a mask because they blew up occasionally so it was not necessarily you know the safest occupation in 1915 the coca-cola company decided that they needed a bottle that was their own, their own bottle. Because um, all by then, of course, there were plenty of bottlers, but they were all using their own bottles. And so the Coca-Cola company had a contest, essentially, where they said, we want a design that if you take that bottle and you throw it on the, the ground, it breaks into 100 pieces. Any piece you pick up, you're still going to know it's a Coca-Cola bottle. And if you think about it, and you think about that, that, that hobble skirt bottle that has the ridges down the side and all of it, even if you don't pick up the piece that has Coca-Cola on it, um, you would still recognize it as a Coca-Cola bottle. So the company that won was the Root Company. That Root bottle then became the, the Coca-Cola bottle, or the hobble skirt bottle that we call it. Some people call it the Mae West bottle because it's got that shape of Mae West or at least part of her anyway. Uh, but so it's, um, but it's a great bottle and uh, used of course for, for, still used today. Now in 1994, they took that bottle which they had been using over and over and over and over again. They made it a throwaway bottle and they made it an eight ounce bottle instead of a six and a half ounce bottle. But you know, today we still sell the little bottles that look like, you know, the six and a half ounce bottles.
And when we come back, more of this remarkable story, the Coca-Cola story, Vicksburg story. And by the way, we know Vicksburg mostly from this gigantic and important Civil War battle back in the 1860s. But for me, as a gigantic Coca-Cola fan, I know Vicksburg for that bottle that we were just talking about that I'm holding in my hand and my favorite thing to drink in the world. When we come back, the story of the Coca-Cola Museum in Vicksburg, Mississippi. More after these messages. Our American Stories, and we've been listening to the story of how Coca-Cola came to be, and we've been hearing from Nancy Bell, the executive director for the Historic Preservation in Vicksburg, Mississippi. And by the way, you'll hear from us often floating out into the country and talking to these great little museums, uh, historical keepers of all kinds of things, from those great museums in Philadelphia about our nation's history, straight through to the Well, the Mascot Hall of Fame and the Toaster Museum, there are places around this country we cover and want to cover. And now back to the story and back to Nancy Bell. All right, we have a a large collection of bottles and they they run from, you know, 1886 to um, to the current day. Um, And... uh, we unfortunately we don't have all of them um, because there are literally thousands of them so people will come in and they'll look at our collection and they'll say oh well you don't have such and such and then you know I'll just have to send it to you and most of the time they do it's fast it's just great you know to get a box and go well they really did do that once they got back home Um, and so we have a Harry Potter bottle which is one of my favorites Um, so it's from England Um, but the Paris, France ones are actually not glass. They're aluminum, but they're pink and white, and they're just cool. Um, so we have lots of sports teams. We have lots of anniversaries of um, cities and states and counties and things like that. Um, we, have, um, we, we have a whole lot from across the world. All around the store and museum, there are tons of old-fashioned advertisements. A lot of what they have has come from donation. Some of Nancy's favorites are the ads from World War II. They seem to capture that wholesome Americana feeling that is so associated with Coca-Cola. Some of my most favorite advertisements, and advertisements are something that we deal with a lot here, um, is the, the advertisements that have to do with World War II, um, because of course they ship tons and tons of Cokes over um, to Europe and to, to Asia and you know to it was it was kind of a feel-good thing you know for them and of course if you look at the advertising for Coca-Cola it is feel-good advertising I mean it is wholesome it is ha- you know um, and so uh, to me the World War II ads are just great it's there's one that says like he's coming home tomorrow you know, it's it, I'm gonna get my Coca-Cola's ready. You know, <laughs> my my husband's coming home tomorrow. But it was, so it was yeah. feel-good advertising. So in um, so by World War II, of course, they were already shipping lots of stuff over there. It was already a part of the culture of other countries. Um, 
and the and of course you see even in the advertise some other advertising that they did they would highlight other countries where they were selling that coca-cola had become something that was uniquely patriotic it's sold everywhere but what about it makes it so american coca-cola is the best known icon and it is the best known icon it is made it was made in america and so to me that's what makes it you know american is that it is a tremendous American story. It is this pharmacist who literally was dying. And, you know, he's searching for a medicine or whatever. He invents the world's most popular, most recognized drink. And um, unfortunately dies before he can see it, you know, become something very, you know, huge. <laughs> it's a piece of home that's very, very easy for someone to recognize when you're in a different country. Um, and while those, some of those flavors later on became a different flavor, because if you've gone to the Coca-Cola plant, you know, in Atlanta, if you've gone to their museum, um, they give you some tastes of, of Coca-Cola from other countries and they're different. Part of that's the water, part of that's just what makes, what, what they enjoy. But if, you're, if you are a serviceman, in wherever in, on earth, and you get a Coca-Cola, it's coming from the United States, and it's gonna taste like home. That's what you know it to be. So to me, that makes it, you know, that makes it America. It is a wholesome American drink, but Coca-Cola had a little bit of a sketchy background. And in talking about the wholesome thing, then you of course get into the whole, the whole, um, discussion about cocaine and whether there was cocaine in coca-cola and um, you know as I said one of the biggest things about them was that they believed it to be a wholesome product and uh, it did have cocaine in it and um, so it was if you can't get away from it it's the coca leaf and the cola nut and that's how you get coca-cola so it had did have cocaine they maintain it had a trace of cocaine that it did not have much just a trace and of course it had a tremendous amount of caffeine so, you know, that probably uh, it was a part of it as well. However, they, they were, you know, petitioned some by um, parents who didn't like that in there. It was, while it wasn't a new drug, because of course Indians had had it for thousands of years, it was really new to the, you know, the, the population of the United States. But it, they had thought it might help your stomach, they thought it might help you and all these things. They put it in gum, they put it in all kinds of things. So it was not, you know, just in this. Um, and so Mr. Well, Dr. Pemberton who developed it, he was ill, he was also addicted to another drug. And so he was really kind of looking for something else to help him. And so that's one reason why he included it. Plus he did a lot of research with the Indians and found that, well, maybe this will help, you know, whatever. Well, when it was, when he passed away and it became, um, the, the ownership became um, under someone else, it was under Mr. Candler, then Candler didn't like this. He didn't like it being called dope. He didn't like, I mean, he wanted it to be a wholesome thing. And so in 1903, he took the cocaine out of Coca-Cola. Now he, the coca leaf is still in there because they just decocainized it because the coca leaf is something that gives the flavor to Coca-Cola. So, but he did take it out and, and took full page ads saying, you know, I took the cocaine out of Coca-Cola. Oh yeah, there was only a trace amount of cocaine. And, and, and for a while he was even saying it wasn't there, but 
there was a lawsuit and he kind of had to say it in court and so you know it's kind of like okay yeah it's out there yeah but um and and if you look at the ingredients early on i mean it's very obvious but um so he yes he he was very proud of the fact that you know he had because he wanted it to be a wholesome thing it's a family drink you know okay. it's not alcohol and that was one reason why i didn't want the you know the cocaine in there it's not alcohol it's it's something that's that is um, I can't say that it's necessarily good for you, but it's not bad for you. Um, and so it's something, yes, that is, is um, clear, clean, good ingredients, um, nothing bad in there that's going to, you know, they're going to harm you. And um, the advertising was families and, you know, good situations and, you know, um, happy events, um, a woman swimming, you know, I mean, it was, it was um, actually more of those type of outdoor events and things like that than early on it was like sitting at a bar, not a bar bar, but you know, one of our bars like a soda fountain and drinking it, but, but lots more of the outdoor type atmosphere, things going on, family events, things like that. And we have a, it's very hard to read, but we have the handwritten um, ingredients that were first in, in 1886. Um, and of course it has sugar, it had caffeine, it had the, the coca leaf, the cola nut, um, caramel flavoring. Um, I mean, it's just a whole list of things. And and that's, you know, who knows how much of this and how much of that it, Pemberton ended up, you know, doing. But when Mr. Candler got it, he said there were entirely too many ingredients. You know, it was just, it was hard to, to put all of that together and, um, and did we really need all those ingredients to come up with this really good taste? Now, how he worked that out, I have no idea. But apparently he did take some things out. And um, so, you know, today you can read the ingredients. I mean, it's essentially the same thing. I mean, it's, it's um, without cocaine, of course. But it changed then. I think it's probably changed a little bit through time. In the 1980s, of course, they went from cane sugar to corn syrup, which to me changed the taste. You can still get Mexican Cokes, which we sell here, that, that have cane sugar in it. To me, that's what it's supposed to taste like. Coke has a bright flavor, a distinctive flavor, all its own, that has never been equaled. It's bracing, too. Coca-Cola gives you a bit of quick energy that brings you back so refreshed, so quickly, and with as few calories as half an average juicy grapefruit. Stop at the fountain where Coke is served. Then you can relax with the most asked for soft drink in the whole world, bright and bracing Coca-Cola. Give yourself a break. Have a Coke. Well, that's enough for today. Now for a lively lift. Ice cold Coca-Cola. There's no waistline worry with Coke, you know. Mmm, another thing, the cold, crisp taste of Coke is so satisfying, it keeps me from eating something else that might really add those pounds. As you can hear from the old-fashioned commercial, it was thought that Coke could even be good for you. Many people would disagree today, but the wholesome home-filled flavor of Coke perhaps does more for the soul than for the body. And that's the cool thing, is that, you know, that people come in and they're like, I mean, they love Coke. I mean, they just, that's just a part of, you know, my, my grandmother, I mean, she was 90 years old. She still wanted to have her little Cokes, you know. I mean, it was, it was something that was very, very important to her. I'm Faith Garcia, and this is Our American Stories. And great job, as always, Faith. And by the way, I think of bright and bracing all the time when I drink my Coke, and it's a lively lift still for me. 
And as Jesse and I completely agree and we're nodding during the piece, that cane sugar and those Mexican Cokes, that's the real deal. That they're available now all over the United States. Well, it's just such a blessing. And we're a bunch of Coke addicts here, and I'm chief addict. Addict and chief here at Our American Stories. The Coca-Cola story, a classic American story here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and it's time for the McClellan Files, where we go deep inside the life of Bob McClellan, someone that you don't know, but whose life and whose voice you're sure to be captivated by. And today, Bob recalls one particular day during his 13-week stay in Marine Boot Camp. We had had a long day. And we were tired and very hungry. To make matters worse, we were one of the last platoons to get into the mess hall for dinner. As we filed in, you could see dusk was coming from the setting sun. The sun was rising when we started our day. After heaping my tray with all the food I could, I stood at attention along the table and waited for the command to sit and eat. Sergeant Calvert hollered in his deep and gravelly voice, But Butts hit the chair. Get up, he said. Get back to attention. Let's try that again. All I could think about was, oh, God, just let's get going here, man. This is time to eat. I just wanted to eat. He said, I want to hear one sound of 80 butts hitting the seat, not 80. But hey, feet. We repeated this exercise again and again until he was satisfied. What a jerk, I thought, as I sat down. Finally, he gave the command to eat at attention. We were not to look around or talk. Only then did he give us the command to eat. Staring down at the tray and shoveling food in, I wanted something to drink. In front of the recruit sitting next to me was a metallic pitcher containing the Kool-Aid. With very little motion, I tilted my head and imperceptibly whispered the words, Kool-Aid, when all of a sudden boots came charging down the length of the table rattling the trays with each stomp. Standing before me on top of the table with his boots straddling my tray was Sergeant Calvert. He looked down at me with the visage of a wrathful god. I thought he was going to kick my mouth in with the polished leather toe of his boot. I froze for a moment. I didn't know what to do. And then he told me, cursing and yelling with a thunderous voice, he said, are you suffering from rectal cranial inversion, Private McClellan? Is there something about the English language that you don't understand? You have disobeyed my orders. And for that, McClellan, you will pay. You will all pay. Now get up, all of you, and get out of here right now. Everybody fall outside into formation. Do you think you're at the slop shoot? This is no damn social club. Get outside and get into formation. 
One recruit ran out trying to shove food in his mouth until Staff Sergeant Fisher knocked the tray out of his hands, sending it and the food to the deck. Standing in the middle of the stampede, fleeing through the doorway, he knocked trays out of the hands of privates trying to poach food. I ran past the garbage can, knocked all the food out of the tray, stacked it on the wash rack, and lined up in formation. I learned that day that though the Marine Corps has to feed us, they don't have to give us any time to eat. It was at moments like this that I hated Sergeant Calvert the most. In all platoons, there's always one DI that is the most dreaded, feared, and despised drill instructor of all. In platoon 3095, that man was Sergeant Calvert. He was short, he was curt, monosyllabic, completely unsympathetic to our needs, and spoke with a deep, gargling voice that seemed to come up from his bowels. His diction was perfect, though. He had a passion for hard consonants and long, long vowels. Each curse that left his lips would be elongated as if it was a musical note. He was indifferent to life under his command and completely intolerant of individuals. I think the only book he'd ever read was the guidebook for Marines. Wearing his gray Marine Corps sweatshirt this morning was a sign that we would spend the day in hell. He approached me and with his smoky bare brim kept pushing the edge of it into my forehead while he upbraided me for thinking that his orders don't apply to me. He said that God had personally picked him to make my life as miserable as possible until I learned to follow directions. You seem to believe that my commands to eat and attention don't apply to you, Private McClellan. You must think you're someone very special. Is that what your mother told you? That you're very special? Very precious? Maybe she wouldn't approve of the way we do things down here. Maybe she should come down here and help you pack and take you home with her. Well, you, Private McClellan, are no longer important anymore. The Marine Corps is. No one's coming to rescue you. You asked to be here. We didn't ask you to come here. We didn't ask you to join. You will regret your attitude. Looking up to my face, the bill of his smoky bear kept tapping the bridge of my nose with its edge while he stuttered and screamed curses at me. Inches from my face, I had to stand staring straight ahead and feel the spray of his saliva spew out of his mouth, scattered among his curses. I stood his attention, standing as tall as I could to make him see he was smaller than I was and shorter than I was, and keeping my eyes looking straight ahead, I didn't flinch. And at that moment, all I was thinking about was shoving my hand down his throat and ripping his larynx out when he stopped abruptly and walked behind me. I stood waiting for something to happen, but nothing did. I could not see where he was nor what he was doing. So in a few seconds, I just decided to relax a little bit. And within seconds of that, I could feel his breath coarsely whispering into my ear from behind me. With his lips barely touching my earlobe, he cooed. You don't like me, do you, McClellan? I think you hate me. I think you hate me, don't you, Private McClellan? No, sir, I shouted in protest. He whispered to me, it breaks my heart to know that you're upset with me, Private McClellan. I thought we'd be good friends down here, you and me. Maybe you disapprove of my instructions. Am I hurting your feelings, Private McClellan? 
Are you going to write and tell your mother? No, sir, I yelled again in protest. Coming around from behind me, he once again pushed that brim into my forehead. And inches from my eyes, he said, I can see right now, Private, you are thinking of how much you would like to hurt me, aren't you? No, sir, I said. Oh, yes, you are, McClellan. Do I look stupid to you? You look stupid to me. And when we come back, we're going to find out what happens to Bob McClellan and Sergeant Calvert. The McClellan Files, here on Our American Stories. Turn to Bob McClellan's story about his Marine drill instructor, Sergeant Calvert, who made his life at Marine boot camp a living hell. I think you're a real dumb sh- private. So let me make something real clear to you. Anytime you want a piece of me, you go for it. Look around first before you do and say goodbye to the world you knew. Because if you ever raise your hand towards me, you will never leave this base. With his voice rising louder and louder with every syllable, he hollered, I will break you like an egg. And after I'm done with you, I'll keep rotating your ass back for as long as it is necessary. Then widening his eyes, he looked through me saying, and you will never, ever, ever leave here. Do you understand me, Private? Yes, sir, I answered. I wanted to get under his skin in the worst way. But I knew I'd pay a terrible price for such foolishness. Boot camp is designed to ensure recruits are never right and never win. There is no victory here. My best outcome would be to survive it and head somewhere else. So I just took it. Standing in platoon formation, he ordered us to right face. He said we were going to go on a little run to help us digest our meals. He didn't want us to get fat and lazy and ruin our figure in a Marine Corps uniform. I was up front since I was one of the taller recruits, and up till now my wrestling experience kept me up with the challenge of conditioning. We headed out across the base down the road to the Naval Training Center at the end of the San Diego airport. When we turned onto this road, I knew he had lied to us. Passing by the Naval Training Center, We had to suffer the indignation of seeing sailors smoking, eating candy bars, drinking Cokes, and hollering insults at us. As we ran by in a cloud of dust, they gathered along the fence, yelling to us about how stupid we looked and what a bunch of dumbasses we were to join the Corps. At that moment, I thought maybe my father was right. I might have been a lot happier in the Navy. The sun was almost gone. And in the dim light, we meandered along every road on the base as fatigue began to take its toll. I could hear men behind me gasping for air. My own chest was heaving from breathing deeply to get as much air into my blood as possible. My head tilted forward and my shoulders started to slouch. My legs were tired and I was running out of gas. Soon, a couple men fell out to vomit their partially digested dinner while a couple others just collapsed and sat down alongside the road. One was crying. For every man who fell, two recruits had to fall out, 
help him up, and carry him if necessary. Marines leave no man behind, and we will finish with everyone in the platoon returning, dead or alive, or we will do this all night. Sergeant Calvert? Oh, he was impeccably dressed in his starch utilities, showing no sign of fatigue or perspiration. He continued running, leaving a trail of recruits on the road behind him, with Sergeant Fisher kicking the behinds of the slackers to get off their butts and get back into the platoon. To inspire us, Sergeant Calvert called for a song whose rhythmic chant would sing out to all that Platoon 3095 was coming to an obstacle course near you. To instill pride in us, we sang, If I die in a combat zone, box me up and send me home. Pin my medals across my chest and tell my girl I did my best. Sound off. One, two. Sound off. Three, four. But as more and more men were falling behind, he said he was ashamed of us. He said we were a disgraceful and useless mob unworthy of dying in battle. So he changed the cadence to a song of shame and humiliation that turned the heads of the Marines within distance to hear us sing the Mickey Mouse Club song. And we sang, Who's the leader of the club that's made for you and me? M-I-C-K-E-Y M-O-U-S-E My chest was heaving and my lungs were burning. My feet were starting to shuffle. I could not believe I was still running. I was tempted so many times just to pull out of the formation and sit down, but I knew that dropping dead was preferable than having Sergeant Calvert's wrath riding me every day. But I was at the end. Soon, all I could think about was going home. I remembered what our DIs told us when we arrived. They told us when you think you can't go another step, you have another 30% left. Your mind will quit long before your body does. It is my job to take you to that 90% of that 30. I could not go any further, yet we just kept running along the road. Quitting was the only word that was on my mind. I thought the hell with him. I just can't go any farther. He then, he ordered us to march, and we slowed down to a normal pace. We continued to march to allow all the stragglers to catch up. And when everyone was present, he gave us the command to halt. Sucking air deep into my lungs, I looked back down the road and realized that he took me far farther than I had ever been or ever even willing to go. I was done miles back, and yet here I am. Margins, boundaries, limitations, they have no place here. We're being trained for conditions and situations that are going to make us do the inconceivable. We weren't some football team at practice. This is not about conditioning, but about endurance and character. We were being trained to exceed our own expectations of ourselves and those of our enemies. The bar was going higher. My clothes were soaked with perspiration. I looked like I'd been standing in the rain. There was not a dry spot on my body. Calling us to attention, he stood in front of us, and looking past him, I recognized the sand pits. Oh, Jesus Christ, he's not serious. I thought he's not going to make us do this tonight after all he's put us through. What a son of a bitch. What a bastard. Sergeant Calvert found another 30% in us, and he wanted it. I knew it was going to be a very long night. 
I think after a little run like that, you people could use some time at the beach. So we're going to play some games in the sand. You probably want to drink beer and play volleyball. Maybe you want to walk around and look at the girls in their bikinis. But not today, privates. Today there will be no bikinis on the beach because there are no bikinis in the jungles where you are going. Forward, march. Moving us into the deep sand, he commanded. Instead, you're going to do squat thrusts. Fifty count, all together, face half right. Ready, go! After hundreds of squat thrusts in the sand, to push-ups and sit-ups, we jumped up and down in the ankle-deep sand. Sand was everywhere, in our boots, mouths, nostrils, ears, trousers, and down in our underwear. It was all glued to our bodies with perspiration. A crust of sand covered our clothes like an extra layer of skin. The sand, wet from perspiration, clung to our bodies from head to toe. Most of us were unrecognizable with a thick layer of sand caked on our faces and necks. When we were finally exhausted, which didn't matter to him at all, he told us to slither on our bellies like other lower forms of life for 50 yards across the sand. Now it was pouring into our utilities and down into our t-shirts and boxers and socks. Grains of sand coated the inside of my mouth and stuck up in between my teeth and cheeks. I couldn't even spit it out because my mouth was so dry. It was dark now and late by the time we marched back to our huts. We were told the head would be closed until one hour after taps and we were to sleep in our utilities. Then I desperately needed water and a toothbrush. I climbed into my bunk with sand pouring out of my clothes onto my sheets. I cursed the day that Sergeant Calvert was born, and I cursed his mother too. When taps blew and the lights clicked off, I took a couple seconds to say the prayer that I said every night. Oh God, when will this be over? Help me get out of here. And please God, send Sergeant Calvert to hell. And then I just passed out. And what storytelling, folks, and that's Bob McClellan and the McClellan Files. Go to ouramericannetwork.org and look it up, and you'll see all of his work there, and you can pick up great stories in the middle. And my goodness, even in the middle, this one stands. And some lines that struck me about Sergeant Calvert. He took me farther than I'd ever been. This is not about conditioning, but endurance and character. And we were being trained to go beyond our expectations and our enemies. And how it ended. I cursed the day Sergeant Calvert was born. I cursed him. I cursed his mother, too. The McClellan Files, Bob McClellan's story, so many Marines' story, here on Our American Story.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And our next story is about the most unlikely band to become, statistically speaking at least, the greatest rap group in American history. In 1987, three white Jewish boys from New York City were the most fascinating phenomenon in the burgeoning rap music scene. No, really. The Beastie Boys, barely out of their teens, had just released License to Ill, which quickly reached number one on the charts, the first hip-hop album to achieve that exalted status. And true, it was the fastest-selling debut album in the history of Columbia Records under the Def Jam label. But everybody knew that these three knuckleheads, who were clever enough to come up with the shtick that clicked with MTV-loving suburbia, were just a novelty act. Now, here's a little story I got to tell about three bad brothers you know so well. It started way back in history with that and me. My team! The cartoonish trio consisted of Adam MCA Yauk, Adam Adrock Horowitz, son of prominent playwright Israel Horowitz, and Michael Mike D. Diamond, three MCs from NYC, started out as a hardcore punk band opening for legendary punk groups like The Misfits and The Dead Kennedys in some of the most legendary clubs in the world, such as CBGB's. In 1983, they released a track that was basically a crank call set to a hip-hop beat. It became an underground favorite, but in order to play the song during their live sets, they brought in a DJ known as DJ Double R. Rick Rubin was a long-haired NYU student who would temporarily become the fourth white Jew of the Beastie Boys. But Ruben's DJ stint would be short-lived, and he left the group in order to focus on his small indie rap label called Def Jam Records, which he started and was run out of his dorm room with his friend Russell Simmons. Here's Rick Rubin. The very baby stages of hip-hop was just starting. Completely underground movement. I don't think many people knew about it outside of Brooklyn, Queens, the Bronx, or Harlem. I would see these groups live, and there was an energy in the room that was uh, a very specific feeling. And then the records that would come out didn't have that feeling. I was born to be the king of the bebop swing that has the records that were made early in the years of hip hop. They were essentially R&B records with a band playing an R&B club track, and then a guy would rap on it. But if you went to a club and saw an MC, it wasn't that. It was a DJ scratching, and it was beats. Who can make a cripple man dance by using his mouth if he give me a chance? I didn't know anything about the music business. I didn't know anything about contracts. I didn't really know what a producer did. I just felt like it was possible to make a record that felt more like what the club felt like. Nine Nine Records was a record store I hung out in, and they put out their own records. Through them, I learned the process of making our own records, where to have the sleeves made, where to have the labels made, and started putting out records. The logo was a big D and a big J, and it really was about the DJ's place in hip-hop being, in a way, equal to that of the MC. Just as the Beasties were beginning to bubble on the punk scene, they transitioned to rap, a significantly less popular form of music at the time. So insignificant, you could count on one hand the number of known rap groups at the time. And on that one hand, none of them were white. 
Major labels were not looking for rappers, and definitely not white ones. That is, until Rick Rubin offered the Beasties a deal in 1984 on his dorm room-operated label. Rubin took his metalhead music background and his passion for rap music and infused it into these three teenage boys. Here's Beastie Boy, Mike D. Rick definitely came from like a whole ACDC, like Led Zeppelin, Long Island, like rock background that, that wasn't, that he pretty much, I guess in that sense, kind of introduced us because we kind of came from like punk rock, like, all right, forget about that. We just wanted to, you know, do hip hop. And he kind of definitely brought that, that kind of in, in a, in a big way. I mean, definitely we got real into it and got into the idea of like Led Zeppelin having beats or, you know, ACDC having grooves or beats, whatever. Here's Ruben. I grew up on Long Island and kind of liked a lot of more heavy metal and rock and roll. So I kind of tried to incorporate things like Led Zeppelin and, and ACDC and more rock aspects into the hip hop. It was just an interesting cross-pollinization of cultures, taking all the stuff that we grew up with and figuring out how to mix it all together and use elements from all different places. After releasing some buzzworthy singles, the group went on to open for pop legend Madonna on her Virgin tour. Their popularity grew. Here's MTV in 1985 asking the 22-year-old Rick Rubin where the Beastie Boys video is at. The only reason that we haven't done a video yet is because as soon as we do, they're going to have to change it from MTV to Beastie TV because that's all they're going to show all day long, all night long. The Beastie survived the Madonna tour with their love us or hate us attitude and then joined the rap legends Run DMC on their groundbreaking Raising Hell tour where acceptance was much more coveted. But going on tour with Run DMC didn't guarantee success with their almost all-black audience. Here's friends of Ruben and the Beasties, Rick Manello and Adam Dubin, and former host of Yo! MTV Raps, Dr. Dre. So when they first walked on the stage, it was like, whoa, we white guys trying to rap. On stage, a white guy had to earn his stripes, and no one had done that yet. It's like if you went to the Apollo and you were a comedian, the audience in the rap in rap at that time was just like the audience, the black audience at the Apollo, which a white audience sits there and goes, okay, entertain me. A black audience goes, what you got? What you got, sucker? Basically, because they, they want to be entertained. And when the Beasties first came on, they were not greeted with, with widespread approval, but usually by the end of their set, they would have won the audience over. And they did that pretty quickly. We did a show in Virginia, and you had 5,000 little black girls screaming and hollering, trying to get to them. Wanting to have a good time and, and loving the guys just generally because of they were real with what they were trying to say. They weren't trying to be black. They were trying to be the Beastie Boys. And it worked and it translated. The music translated, not the color. Uh, the beats were very aggressive. So in hip-hop, we always loved aggressive beats as far as stuff like from Aerosmith, stuff like from Queen, ACDC. So those kind of beats were kind of similar to what they were doing with the alternative beats, with the big drums and the big bop, 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 boom, bop, 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 and all that craziness. And all we did is just scratch it. So you heard the zigga, zigga, boom, boom, bop, zigga, boom, boom, bop. So we always used the same, kind of like similar beats. So it was kind of like right there on the same thing. But uh, it was the commentary and delivery that was a little different. Here's hip-hop pioneer Fab Five Freddy and Daryl McDaniel from Run DMC. Now I remember these guys coming out and doing Hold It Not Hit It and the crowd went crazy. 
I was backstage at the time, and I remember Run came back and said, yo, the BC's about to, to come on. And everybody rushed to the side of the stage to watch them. That's Rakim, LL, Cool J, Mo D, Houdini. Everybody on the tour came to the side of the stage because everybody felt like they were their little brothers. Like They would open up for us. It was like the black audience, and we could be like down in the South, down in Texas, or down in South Carolina, in some really Southern black Negro town. And when the BCs came out, and um, Dr. Dre was scratching, and they came out jumping around, screaming, rhyming, it wasn't like people said, all right, let me go get a prank. And people stood there and was like, yo, these white boys are ill. These white boys are dope. These white boys are good. Say, ho, ho. Here's Public Enemies, Chuck D. They was almost like the flip side, like Jackie Robinson was the baseball, the Beastie Boys were to rap music. Here's Beastie Boys, MCA, and Mike D. When we first came out making hip hop, people were just like mainly surprised because no white kids were really up on hip hop or doing it too much. So like, I guess a lot of kids would just check it out and just be surprised to even hear that we were making that kind of music and just be like, what, you guys are white? Like, they would think we were Puerto Rican or something or just not figure that we were white. People were really freaked out that all of a sudden, number one, we were having concerts where there were black groups and white groups performing on stage. You had black kids and white kids coming together in a way that they probably never would have for any other group at the time. And when we come back, more on the life and the work of the BC Boys, and we love music here, every kind, from Miles Davis to Merle Haggard. We do everything here on Our American Stories. And we continue with the story of the Beastie Boys, and let's bring it back to Greg Hengler. From the beginning, the Beastie Boys kept a foot in both worlds, one in the hip-hop world and the other in the pop-rock world. But keep in mind that the boys achieved all the success before they even put out a full-length album. The band was perfectly positioned, right on the edge between clever and stupid. And all this momentum culminated into the headline from The Village Voice. Three Jerks Make a Masterpiece. The Beastie Boys released their Rap Metal Fuse debut LP that sampled from the likes of Led Zeppelin, Black Sabbath, The Clash, ACDC, and CCR, to name just a few. We all know the name of the album, but nobody says it better than the legendary talk show host and comedian, Joan Rivers. Their newest album is called License to Kill, and it went platinum after only eight weeks. License to Kill, right? That's ill, Joan. Well, I'm telling you, I've got my stupid contacts in. Hold on. Okay, sorry about this. Their album is called License to Ill. That's a stupid name for an album. It didn't go platinum in four weeks, but it did become the first rap record to hit number one on the Billboard charts. It also hit number two on the R&B charts. Rap charts had yet to exist. Once again, a foot in both worlds. Here's hip-hop pioneer, 
Wednesday, Adams. I remember Adam and I were walking down the street before the record came out, and he says to me, he goes, this is going to be so great. We're going to be, you know, on American Bandstand, and we're going to do Soul Train, and we're going to be hanging out with Don Cornelius. And I looked over to him, and I was like, you know, you're crazy. Nobody's going to do that. And the record came out, and it exploded. And literally, in two months, we were in L.A. on Soul Train, for Don Cornelius, and I, I just couldn't believe that America just embraced them in the way that they did. Licensed to Ill went triple platinum and became the biggest selling rap record of the 80s and was certified diamond in 2015 for shipping over 10 million copies in the United States. To this day, the album still sells over 10,000 copies a week, a true rarity in the ever-changing world of hip-hop. Def Jam, under the direction of Russell Simmons and Rick Rubin, tried to take the success of the Beastie Boys to the big screen, a tactic used with both Run DMC and the Fat Boys. But the Beasties rejected the offer and left Def Jam in New York for Capitol Records in L.A. to work with the Dynamo production team of the Dust Brothers and Matt Dyke on their sophomore album. Fans expected License to Ill Part 2, but instead of rehashing their biggest hit, the band returned in 1989 with the album Paul's Boutique, the most sample-laden LP in the history of hip-hop. Using around 300 samples from funk, soul, rock, rap, jazz, and everything in between, from the Beatles to Johnny Cash to the Eagles, the head-spinning epic was one of the most counterintuitive albums ever made. Rather than give the fans more of the same, the Beasties gave them more cowbell. With their Commodore's powered single, Hey Ladies, which was sampled from Jeanette Lady Day's Come Let Me Love You. Here's rock critics Alan Light and Joe Levy. Paul's Boutique really just didn't sound like anything that anybody had ever done before. Where the Dust Brothers were in terms of sampling technology on that record, nobody had heard that before. People didn't know you could make a record sound like that. It's just this beautifully layered record, very deep in its musical texture, very deep in its lyrical texture, as funny as can be. They, they sampled Cheap Trick, they sampled David Bromberg. They, they had these wide ears, they were open to everything. And you could never make that record today. It'd be way too expensive. You could still use recognizable samples in 1989 and not have to pay millions and millions of dollars for them. So it hit a lucky time where they, there was this new technology that they could really exploit and really play around with. With the release of Paul's Boutique, the Beastie Boys had reinvented their sound. It was another masterpiece, but it was also a commercial disaster and cost some Capitol Records employees their jobs. It barely earned gold status. Here's music critic Nelson George. Paul's Boutique cleared away all the pop people and left them with their real core fans. And those are the people who were gonna grow with them. And what happened is that the people who they got with Paul's Boutique then became their new audience. So it's a, they really made a transition in who bought their records and who were their fans. 10 years after the release of Paul's Boutique, it went double platinum and was recognized worldwide as a landmark achievement and one of the greatest hip-hop albums of all time. Rolling Stone would describe the album as the pet sounds and dark side of the moon of hip-hop. 
Fast forwarding to 1992, their next album was ready. But with the emergence of grunge rock and the dominance of gangster rap, nobody knew how the public would respond to their third album, Check Your Head. It was the first record released under the band's own label, Grand Royale, and the first album featuring instrumentation from the band, a move that brought them back to their punk rock roots. They really found a way to blend a hip-hop core with other kinds of music. And so you don't end up with the stereotypes or the cliches of hip-hop, but with some of the best flavor of it. Check Your Head was different from Paul's Boutique, as that album was from License to Ill, and as groundbreaking as either one. The album was led by the psychedelic sounds from the single, So What You Want. The record's blend of punk, funk, and rap went triple platinum. They did two tours to support the album, one with the Rollins Band and one with Cypress Hill. One foot in the rock world, one foot in the rap world. The combination of rapping, DJing, and live instrumentation was a Beastie Boys invention, setting the stage for groups like Korn, Linkin Park, and Rage Against the Machine. The Beastie Boys had become the ultimate tastemakers and cool hunters. Here's luscious Jackson drummer, Kate Schellenbach. It's a phenomenon how influential they are on almost all aspects of popular culture. Certainly, fashion-wise, anything they wear basically becomes an instant uh, youth culture fashion hit. Here's skateboarding legend, Tony Hawk. These boys have really brought notice to kind of our culture, you know, like the skate, punk, just the, the whole vibe, and uh, they reached a totally different audience than any of, of our interests would have. The Beastie Boys fans range from those of highbrow to lowbrow to low, low, low brow. These guys are good dancers. Yeah. <laughs> I wish I was more like them. Yeah, me too. <laughs> According to the Oxford English Dictionary, use of the term mullet to describe the hairstyle was coined and certainly popularized by American hip-hop group the Beastie Boys. Of course, the Beasties didn't invent the actual hairstyle, but it wasn't until the Beastie Boys released their song Mullet Head on their next album, Ill Communication, in 1994 that the hairstyle actually gained its name. Ill Communication entered the charts at number one, and the music video for their Edge of Hysteria hit single Sabotage was directed by Spike Jones. It was an homage to and parody of 1970s crime drama shows such as Hawaii Five-O, Beretta, and Starsky and Hutch. Four years later, Hello Nasty hit the stores and again premiered at number one and won them two Grammy Awards. In 2004, their To The Five Burrows album again entered the charts at number one and went platinum. In 2007, the band released The Mix Up, which was an album that consisted entirely of instrumental tracks. This record won the Beastie Boys another Grammy. Then, following The Mix Up, Adam MCA Yauk was diagnosed with cancer and underwent treatment. They were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame on April 14th, 2012. MCA was too sick to attend the ceremony, having been admitted to the hospital the same day. 
The following month, Adam MCA Yauk died of cancer at the age of 47. In June 2014, Mike D confirmed that he and Ad-Rock would not perform under the Beastie Boys' name again out of respect for MCA. The Beastie Boys spent 27 years in the rap game, selling over 26 million records in the United States and over 50 million worldwide. With one diamond and seven platinum albums, these three Jews from New York City make up the greatest rap group of all time. No other group comes close. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And well done, Greg. And not many bands end because they lose one member. Remember Led Zeppelin folds when John Bonham dies. By the way, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. If you like music, our arrow on Frank Sinatra, on Tom Petty, Steinway, Les Paul, Vladimir Horowitz, Billy Joel, Glenn Campbell, Merle Haggard, Miles Davis, Chuck Berry, and my favorite, George Martin, the fifth Beatle. I know, he's British, but the impact the Beatles had on American music, well, they're still having it. This is Lee Habib, the Beastie Boys story here on Our American Stories. (laughs) 